0: one after. And uh, since the Christmas message is way beyond our ability to uh, squeeze into uh, just four weeks of teaching from the Bible, uh, this is helpful for us today. Uh, I'd like to talk to you this morning about Bethlehem's Christmas story, God dwelling among us. And the most popular of the Christmas stories, of course, is in Luke chapter 2, the story of the shepherds. Last week, we talked about the story of the wise men. Uh, today, we want to just take a peek at uh, the shepherds. Chapter 2, verse 1, It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Uh, Rome was in charge of the world at the time, and you've heard the old statement there. There are two things that are always sure in life. It is what? Taxes and death. Yes, right. Taxes and death, Right. Uh, and, uh, and so the Roman Empire was ruling the world, and uh, they, wanted, they wanted your money. And so uh, they made a decree that all of the Jewish people would go to their ancestral home, the place where they had their family records, and update the records. And so Caesar Augustus said, listen, it's time for a census. In verse 2, the census first took place while Quirinius was governing in Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up into Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David. And we'll say a lot more about this this morning. Uh, Bethlehem was at that time known as the city of David. And if you go to Israel today, and it is still known that way which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed or engaged wife, who was with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Uh, the firstborn son there denotes there were children after that. This was her first. Matthew 13. Matthew uh, gives the names of some of Mary's other children that she had. She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, strips of cloth, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night. They were guarding them against all the hazards, uh, all of the animals that would just love to have a good fresh dinner. Uh, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were greatly afraid, as you and I would be. Then the angel said to them, um, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to what? All people. Not just a few people, all people. Um, God is changing his uh, tactics here. Uh, Remember, he zeroed in on the nation of Israel for a long period of time. And then the blessing started to overflow its bounds for all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Messiah, the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. There were plenty of babies being born there at that time. But uh, in order for them to identify this one, of which uh, uh, is being spoken of here, uh, there was a sign, you will find this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger or a feeding trough. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, The heavenly hosts are angels, uh, the armies of God. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go to Bethlehem. They they did ex- They wanted to see the coming of the Savior and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying that was told them concerning the child. And all those who heard it marveled at these things which were told them by the shepherds. And Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Uh, She recorded them in her baby book. You know, um, when people have babies, they create books, right? And they write meticulously for the first baby. The baby yawned today. I think I saw a smile on this day. And it's like a whole journal. Second baby comes along, no book. Uh, We have at our house... Right now, little Caden John, and he's six weeks old. And uh, right before he was born, we kept asking Tammy and Steve, "What are you going to name this kid?" <laughs> they say we're so busy, we can't even think of a name. You know, before when Jenna was born, Jenna Elizabeth. You know, they had her name down long before. But things change after children come to live in the house. And so uh, Mary pondered all these things in her heart. She recorded them somewhere, some little uh, book, I'm sure. Uh, you know, people have always uh, had a longing through the ages to, to be touched by God. In the Old Testament, Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. I want, I want, to, I want to see you, Lord. And through the ages, uh, maybe even in this age in which we live, maybe you here in the church today, have said something familiar to that to god maybe you've said lord in some way reveal yourself to me uh... lord let me know you're out there let me know you know about my situation hold your place right here and turn back with me please to the book of john uh... not too far from where you are to the right the book of john matthew mark luke and john Uh, before jesus came into this world and uh had this name, Jesus, Uh, he had another name, and his other name was the Word. And we're not going to go into the first part of the book of John because many of you, of course, we don't have the time, but many of you are familiar with that. Uh, But we are going to begin reading in verse 11, and he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. That refers primarily to the nation of Israel, for the most part. Some did, but for the most part, they didn't. They did not receive Him, but as many as received Him, to them gave the right or the authority to become the children of God to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of God, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this is the key verse right here. And we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When Jesus came, uh, He was the Word, He was God. And uh, he wrapped himself in some way in flesh and appeared in Bethlehem. And then the, then the display went, uh, started. And God showed himself through Christ. Uh, and this person was full of grace and truth. Uh, he did this thing all gracefully. And uh, he is the truth. And so, therefore, there was, that was the hallmark of his ministry. When Jesus came on the scene, truth broke out. And uh, whenever people really see Jesus the way he is, uh, they say, you know, I always just want to follow Jesus because he's the truth. Uh, I think he's telling the truth. Uh, you know, he can't do otherwise. It's impossible for him to tell a lie. He is, he is the epitome, the essence of truth. Uh, the story is told, it's an old story of a European monarch who worried his court by often disappearing and walking incognito among his people. When he was asked not to do so for security's sake, he said, I cannot rule my people unless I know how they live. Now we know that Jesus is all knowing and the big word that 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 you're aware of is the word omniscient. Uh, but just to remove all doubt and to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that he knows the human condition, this is what God did. He stepped down into the middle of the human condition. Uh, Jesus came into the world to feel how we lived. Uh, I, I know that he knew already, but just so nobody would be able to say, Lord, you don't know my state, uh, we can't say that. Uh, you're familiar with Hebrews four fifteen 15 and 16. Uh, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, uh, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Uh, He knows all about our weaknesses. He was tempted, but uh, he responded differently than we do oftentimes. Sometimes we respond and it's very sinful, isn't it? But when Jesus responded to the attacks, the testings, and the trials that came in his life and the temptations, uh, his response was always without sin. And so the next verse, which is like you guys have this memorized, uh, verse 16, let us come boldly to the throne of grace because of all of that, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so when we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, I've got this awful situation going on, uh, Jesus uh, walked in your shoes. Uh, and, you know, I really do believe this. That somebody really can't understand what's going on in your life unless they walk in your shoes. You know, I can't tell you how many times people have come to me with their problems and issues, and you know what I've said glibly? Uh, you know, I understand, but you know I didn't. I didn't understand. You can't understand unless you walk where they walk. unless you put their sandals on. And so Jesus, I'll tell you what—he spent a lot of time walking up and down this world. And, uh, and he hurt more than you hurt because he was a whole lot more sensitive to the evil of the world than you are. And when you're sensitive to the evil of the world, a whole lot of things hurt you. Uh, here, let's go back to Luke chapter 2 and verse number 1. It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Augustus was ruling, but God was in charge. And uh, you know, every time I come to the Christmas story, I'm, I I look at it a little bit uh, deeper, a little bit more full. And so I went on a little uh, search this time through and looked up a number of scriptures that that illustrate this this thought. Augustus was ruling, but God was in charge. Uh, for instance, Jeremiah twenty nine nine, uh, the Lord says, "Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is my servant." Now, if you know anything about Nebuchadnezzar, he was a real bad guy. He was used by God as a whip in his hand to come up and destroy Jerusalem, tear the temple down, just wipe the city off the face of the map. And God says, listen, relax. He's my servant. He's serving me. Jeremiah 27.6. I think we have that one. Let's read this together. And now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And the beast of the field, I have also given him to serve him. Now, again, we find that same reference. Nebuchadnezzar is my servant. I've given him the things that he's taking away. Uh, You know, we look around the world today and we say, man... This world is so messed up. Uh, There isn't any sensibility anywhere. And uh, we wish that we could just go out and, like, create some sense out of chaos. Uh, God says, I think, in different verses throughout the Bible, just relax. I'm working my plan out on earth. And and that's hard for us because we want to work God's plan out on earth, don't we? We want to say, Lord, I just know... What needs to be done right here? Listen to me. Uh, Isaiah forty four twenty eight. to take a few notes. Called Cyrus, he is my shepherd, God said. Now that's interesting. He was a bad guy too. Uh, Isaiah 45, 1. Uh, the Lord called Cyrus his anointed. In Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, I think we have that one. Uh, let's read this. Now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing God said Cyrus I I want you to make a proclamation and Cyrus says okay I'll do that Uh, now the uh, the great verse, which which I think you can memorize, is Proverbs twenty one one, and this this says it in a more general way. Let's read this one: The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, like the rivers of water; he turns it wherever he wishes. Uh, God says, "Relax there." heart is in my hand. Now just think of that. You know, we look across the world today and we say, okay, this despot, this crazy leader in this country is completely nuts, completely evil. Um, I, I think God's message is, listen, all of that is true, but remember this, believers, his heart is in my hand. And like the rivers of water, I can turn his heart Anyway, I want it to go. Uh, one other verse before we move on on that is Daniel 2.21. The Bible says he changes the times and the seasons. He did that yesterday here in Pennsylvania. Amen. Wow. Some of you are tired. You, it came in last night. I, I was trying to have the Saturday night service, and people were sitting there like this. You know, they were, they were like, they went out and had so much fun. Uh, they just barely made it to church and, and hardly made it through the sermon. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Uh, He removes kings and raises kings. We can put any term in there you want to put. And for our benefit, why don't we put presidents, okay? He removes presidents, raises up presidents. Uh, How would God get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem? Uh, God moves nations to accomplish his will. You know, when we look at the world scene and we say, boy, why is that nation doing that? We have to, in the back of our minds, somewhere, have this thought lodged. Hey, God's up to something here. God's up to something. Now, verse number four talks about Bethlehem. It's, uh, it was, it, Bethlehem means house of bread. And I'm going to list this morning, as many as I can, the things for which Bethlehem was famous back in that day. First of all, it was famous for prophecy. And uh, here's the prophecy. Micah 5.2. Now, this is the original prophecy. Remember last week we talked about the one that was quoted in Matthew? And there was a, it was like a paraphrase, and the last part was left off. This is the original one here, and so let's read it, all right? But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Now, for those of you who are here, you remember I said there were two Bethlehems. Uh, I want to commission some of you computer gurus to just go on a computer and find out for me how many Bethlehems there are in America. Just write the question, how many Bethlehems, and, and uh, then come back next week and report, okay? Uh, in this time though there were two in Israel. One was in the north, one was in the south. And here the Bible says that this prophecy deals with the one down in Judah. That's the south. The ancient name Ephrata was given there right beside Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. Ephrata means fruitfulness. And it referred to the area, all of the, all of the ability that that area had to grow things. And the Bible says that, that out of that little spot, uh, Bethlehem is a suburb of Jerusalem. Out of that little spot, a ruler is going to come for Israel. And uh, the last statement is really uh, interesting to me. It says he his existence has been from old, from everlasting. Now, I connected that verse with Psalm 90, verse 2. And uh, you'll notice the last line. Let's just read the last two lines there. Even from everlasting to everlasting you are God. And so in the Micah prophecy, it says, listen, a ruler in, in Israel is going to be born, and he is the everlasting God. That's who he is. So Bethlehem is famous for prophecy. And you remember how famous it was because when, remember when the wise men came into town, they said, listen, we're trying to find the, uh, the uh, Christ child. And Herod called together the, uh, the doctors of the law, and they said, hey, we know where he's going to be born. Right over there in Bethlehem. Uh, it was famous for prophecy. Whenever people thought of Bethlehem, in the back of their mind, that I don't know how conscious they were, in the back of their mind, they somehow knew that that was the place right there, that the ruler was going to be born for Israel. It's famous because it was the city of David. You know, tour, tour groups have always existed. You know that? Uh, many of you love to go on tours. Every now and then we'll have a little thing in the Sunday Courier, tour to Branson. Uh, tour to to Niagara Falls, tour to here and tour to there. Tour business has always been booming. And at that particular time, Bethlehem was on the tour circuit too. But it was called the city of David because David was the great king of Israel. They all wanted to see where he was born, where he grew up, where he kept sheep on the sides of the fields. And it was close enough that they could go to one of the ancient wonders of the world, the temple in Jerusalem. Man, you couldn't get in that area of the world without going there. That was extraordinary. And so, Bethlehem was famous because it was the city of David. But now, since this story has evolved, it is more famous than ever uh, because it is famous for the Messiah. It also was famous for raising sheep. Uh, Those hills were good for sheep to graze on, and these sheep we believe, were the temple lambs. Each morning and evening an unblemished lamb was offered from among the flocks. During the feast of the Passover, as many as a quarter of a million, a quarter of a million were needed to accommodate the crush of pilgrims pressing into Jerusalem to offer offerings. Uh, The sheep business was a big, big business. And these lambs were being raised so the people could travel there and buy themselves a lamb that they could present to God. And that lamb was a, was part of a system. Now, here we kind of diverge a little bit. That Those lambs were part of a system that God created, a system of atonement. And it went like this. The death of the animal fulfilled the penalty of death that people had hanging over their head. The Bible says, "...the soul that sinneth, it shall die." Exodus 34, 7 says, I will not let the guilty go unpunished. And so God said, I'm going to establish a system, a system of substitutes. And as long as uh, there is this substitute that you bring to me and you shed his blood, I will account that as your death. Now, the word atonement in the Old Testament is used... It's the word Kippur, from which, and we hear the word in our American culture, Yom Kippur, which means the Day of Atonement. Yom is day, and Kippur is atonement. And and so in the Old Testament, God says, "I have this system. It's not perfect, but one day I will perfect it. It's not perfect now, and so you go get yourself a substitute, and you shed the blood of that substitute." And I will consider your sins atoned for. Now, the word atonement means this, to cover. To cover. Now, on the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement was designed in Israel to cover up all the sins that had not been covered up throughout the course of the year. And I'm sure there were plenty of them. And so, uh, on the Day of Atonement, whenever uh, that day took place and Israel fasted on that day... And they made those offerings on the Day of Atonement. All of Israel went, wow, okay, we're okay. And the word atonement means to cover. And so when they came with their sacrifice and they shed the blood, the Bible says without the shedding of blood there is what? No remission of sin. Because the blood was a symbol of death. And God says, listen, somebody has to pay the penalty for your sin. And so I'll accept an offering. I'll accept a sacrifice. I'll accept a lamb. And so, and so they came and they said, hey, this is a good deal. This is a really good deal. Not me, but that lamb. And so they brought the lamb and the blood was shed and God put a covering over their sin. Now, the interesting thing about that is the sin was not washed away in the atonement. It was still there. It was only covered. That's all. And so next year they had to come for another installment. And so, throughout the year, they were committing all these sins like we do, omission, commission, all these things. Uh, and, uh, and so, they were going through this thing throughout the year. And so, the next year, that, well, there's another covering. And so, uh, sins were only covered. Now, here is a verse that really defines what I'm talking to you about this morning. It's in Hebrews 10.4. It says it is for not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. And so in the Old Testament, their sins were covered but not taken away. Uh, and so what they would do is they would come and they would offer their offerings and they'd say, okay, I'll be back next year. Uh, and God said, okay, this is a substitute. I'll accept it. Uh, but it's not perfect. And so they were going through this whole thing. And when you read the Old Testament, you say, man, you can understand this thing will come together for you. There was a tremendous system of sacrifices. It's, it's so big. But it was all a picture of how God worked this whole thing until the last lamb came. And remember, he was introduced, behold the what? The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and so all of this mega business was going on in Bethlehem. All these shepherds, all these sheep, and they were going to go out of business. And they didn't know it. Uh, that was God's uh, version of who moved my cheese. Remember that little book that was floating around? When your business dries up, you've got to find another one. These people had to be retrained. They had to go for more training. Because God was about to dry up their business because in 70 A.D. the temple was coming down. And all these crush of pilgrims weren't coming there anymore uh, to buy these lambs. The temple was gone. Uh, But uh, the last final sacrifice uh, was made and that was Christ. Uh, Bethlehem, again, is famous for the manger, Justin Martyr. Boy, for those of you who like... Uh, interesting teaching, apologetic teaching. Look that up on the Internet, Justin Martyr. He was one of the earliest uh, teachers. He lived in A.D. 150. He said that Jesus was born in a cave. His writings are very interesting. And, and that's true. Jesus was born in a cave. Uh, in the 4th century, the first Christian emperor, Constantine, built a church over this cave, and it's known today as the Church of the Nativity. If you go to Bethlehem, you'll go to this church. It's called the Church of the Nativity. It's been there for ages. And, uh, and there's a doorway into the church. And it's real low. I, I don't know how low it was. I wish I did know how low it was, but it's real low. And it's, it, it really, it's hard to get in, this church. And so you have to get down really low. And then when you get in, you go down a series of stairs and into a cave. And there they said, Jesus is born right there. I asked the guide. I said, why is this doorway so low? And he says, well, they used to always have horses go into the church and run around in the church. And so they put the doorway down low. And I thought, okay, that makes sense. But uh, it makes more sense, too, to realize that when you come into the presence of Christ, you should get down what? Low, right? Um and then there was the inn that was famous for the inn. There's no vacancy. You know, most commentaries uh, that you read and most messages that you hear always, always work over the poor innkeeper. He's not even mentioned here in the Bible. He might just had a sign, no vacancy. I don't know. Uh, they always make him the villain. You know, no inn, no room in the inn. Uh, but uh, I was reading one commentary one time, and it put a, a, a positive light on no room in the inn. And, the, and how it did that is, that they said the inns back in that day were real dirty and real, they were just negative places. Filled with people, no privacy. And the commentator said, it, God probably just said, listen, I have something better than that for my baby. I have a private birth room over here. Out here in this little cave, all by himself, out of that, all that massive filthiness and dirtiness of these people in this old-fashioned inn. Well, God appeared to the angels, or or the angels, excuse me, appeared to the shepherds, and these shepherds were outcasts, they really were, and all of us know the message of this. You know, I was reading um, last night Hebrews 7.25, the Bible says, He is able to save them to the uttermost that come to God by Him. Uh, You know, Jesus is able to do all sorts of things in our life that no one else can do. Uh, Able to save to the uttermost. An older gentleman in our church many years ago said that Jesus can save from the guttermost to the uttermost. And that's true. And that's what he did with the shepherds. You study what the Bible taught, or, or what history refers to the shepherds. You know they couldn't even testify in a court of law. People looked down and they said they can't tell the truth. Those people are so despicable. They were so unreligious. They were outcast. and and so here comes the Lord with the first announcement, and He says, "Listen, I'm going from the uppermost to the lowermost." And I'm going to show them that, listen, I care about all people no matter where they are on planet earth. And, uh, and so these shepherds that were scorned and looked at as despicable people, God spoke to them first. There's born to you a Savior. Uh, the shepherds uh, here in our story became the first witnesses. Let's look at verse 17. The first witnesses. And now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying that was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. The shepherds, uh, they went out and they uh, they were the f- first witnesses. Uh, they went back to work, but they went back changed. They weren't the same. And you know, whenever we have a true con- confrontation with Christ, I-, I don't think there's any way you can be the same. Uh, you know, people come to church and they say to themselves, you know, they look in the mirror and they say, "Listen, there's nothing changing about me." My my answer to that is, you haven't had a confrontation with Christ. Uh, you haven't had one recently, because when you have a an interaction, a confrontation with Christ, a connection with Christ, you change. And here's the verse, Second Corinthians five seventeen. Let's read it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Isn't it great that God can do that in our life? He can take those old things in our life that are destroying us and other people around us and change it all around. And he alone has the power to do this because we know we don't, right? The first of the year is coming up and everybody's getting their New Year's resolutions out that they're going to break two days later. And they're going to turn their life around and turn it over again. And they're going to try to turn over a new leaf. And and I'll tell you, but when you come to the Lord, He can turn over all kind of leaves in your life. Uh, there was no room in the inn. Even a little bit later, there was no room in Bethlehem. He had to go to Egypt to avoid uh, the decree to kill the babies. Uh, his family had to leave Bethlehem. There was no room initially in the overcrowded hearts of people in the land but there's room in the hearts of a few to as many as received him to them gave he the right to become the children of God you know I find that throughout the ministry of Jesus on earth there was just always these closed doors but at the end there was room in it where there was room on the cross for him and they said listen uh, why don't you come down from that cross and the reason why we know he is God is because he didn't come down from that cross. That was his mission. That's, that was his goal. Uh, Jesus was the final offering. Listen to this. Hebrews 10:12 says, After he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down on the right hand of God. He said, listen, I'm going to do away with this system. Shepherds, you're out of business. Uh, no more blood sacrifices. This is the last one. And you know why it was the last one? Now, here it is. Are you ready? He was the last one because of his inestimable value that one could die for the sins of all the world. Uh, Before that, God says, listen, I'll count a lamb for you. That'll be like a trade-off. And so that's why so many lambs had to die. But when the true Lamb of God came from heaven, there is no one that can put a dollar value on the Lamb of God. He is more than valuable to pay the price for the sins of the whole world and more. And so this is why when Jesus died on the cross... He offered one sacrifice for sins forever, and then he said the work is done, and when the work is done, you sit down, and that's what he did. He sat down at the right hand of God. The work is finished, and all we have to do is accept it. And all we have to do is receive Christ as our Savior, our substitute. Now, let me say this, this is a little on the negative thing here. Uh, if you don't accept Jesus as your substitute, you have no substitute. You must pay the penalty for your sin. Because that's just the way God is. He is, when He says something, He means it. And that's why He set the whole system up. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so Jesus has done everything that He could do to stop you from going to hell and paying for your sins. He's done everything he could do. He took his son and sent him on a mission and said, listen, you die on the cross for the whole world and everybody who believes in you, I'll let them off the hook because I'll count your death as their death if they accept you. Let's bow our heads in prayer. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed today, uh, I hope that this has been clear to you. That uh, God has the system, which he perfected in Christ. He gave us a little snapshot of it in the Old Testament. When Christ came, uh, that was uh, the final substitute, sacrificial offering for the sins of the whole world. And that's you. everybody sitting in this church today. Jesus did it for you. You might say, well, you know, I know a guy who's worse than me. Yeah, he, Jesus did it for him, too. Jesus did it for everyone. Jesus did it for the shepherds. He did it for the kings and everyone in between. And he gives this appeal. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I'll forgive your sins. Just trust me. Make me your personal Savior. You have to receive Christ. John 1.12, to as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the children of God. You have to reach out by faith and say, Lord, I receive you. I believe in you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I turn away from my sins, Lord. I turn to you as the solution in my life. I thank you for being my substitute on the cross. Lord, we cannot thank you enough for dying upon the cross for our sins. I pray, Lord, for every single person in our church today that they may embrace you. uh, That they may accept this final sacrifice, this substitute who hung on the cross in their place. And invite you to be their Savior today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing to the Lord.